Hello everyone and welcome to this new episode of The London Circle where today we'll be talking about mental health. I'll be talking with Sahar Beg, who's a psychotherapist, about mental health awareness, about the impact of mental health on the communities, both Muslim and South Asian particularly, about her practice and what she observes in terms of the impact of mental health and its manifestations throughout society. Enjoy! Let's let's talk a little bit about this that in my early years almost never came up it was almost never an issue no one cared about mental health no one was um, um used mental health as mitigating circumstances for anything you know you know it it just basically didn't feature i i try my best to to squeeze my memory trying to think of whether mental health was ever mentioned but i don't remember it's ever mentioned I don't before remember it. i was in my 30s maybe you know 20 years ago and then it was about depression but gradually and over the years we have been enlightened to the what we call now the spectrum to what might be that kind of damage that is inflicted on something that we don't see i mean we see gaping wounds Yes, we see bones so broken we see you know but we don't see the other side and that is the impact of various things on our mental health now you've been now practicing for decades yeah a few days <laughs> how i mean how do you see where we stand today well it's definitely not like it was 20 years ago um there's a lot of movement and you know there's there's more people understanding okay there's something wrong physically with them and i think for many young people it's you know there's a lot of change happening for them and i think they're more inclined now to seek out therapy and get help because they know there's something going on however having said that the elders in the family will say well look you know well you know my father, my mother was like she had depression but we just got on with it we were fine and we were fine yeah. what are you talking about just my, get on with it my dad beat me up yeah look at me now and i'm fine <laughs> you know i was tied up in the cellar did me good you know we have these are real scenarios and um, i remember growing up and feeling really scared of like family members older thinking oh my god you know what's going to happen i'm going to put a foot wrong here but you know but those wounds are still very here you know they're very here on you know whichever shoulder you want them to be on and these are the historical traumas that we get left with and we then fall into well, feeling a bit low i'm not sure what's going on and you know there might be a trigger somewhere if you've got a family and think well okay yeah i remember that happening to me and then the wound gets it just opens it opens like and you have that bud of a flower it opens up and then everything is just like all the bees are coming to suck you out it's like all the honey out there you know the pollen and make this honey but this honey is actually the wounds the wounds um, and the impact i mean the impact is of various manifestations it could be merely about having you know almost no energy in you it could be about feeling you know sad or or you know with a, with a gloomy outlook on life it could take physical manifestations absolutely. in terms of ticks in terms of you know your heart racing in terms of absolutely the the question that often comes is that and and someone actually asked me just before you know i came into the studio said why is it that you know when we were growing up no one seemed to have depression no one seemed to have you know any kind of mental illness why is it that all of a sudden now that everyone seems to have you know something and seems to be sitting somewhere on the spectrum is that because we were ignorant to this before and we've come to a realization that this is something real or is it something else is it something that is uh, i don't know a side effect of of our modern life or the such i think inherited historical trauma is one thing that we must acknowledge and really really acknowledge that that is true and that's outstanding still there and it's not looked at environmentally things have changed so much when you look at our environment now to what it was maybe 30 40 years ago or even our fathers before us in the early 1900s 
and the things that happened then was very different to what it's like now. We've got so much technology and we're more aware of technology, the social media. So we have, we can just at a click of a button, look at something. But I think environmentally things change. Our perceptions of life changes. We question a lot. We have these, what you were talking about, the body, these somatic feelings. So the somatic feelings are, I might not have gone through much in life, but I'm having a feeling and a sensation from somewhere. And it could be I've inherited that from a family member somewhere along the line. That, and that is actually medically proven. Absolutely, absolutely. So when we have these um, sessions with clients for, I can only speak for myself, but when I'm with clients and, and I will do, like it's like a family history tree, we call it a genogram, and we go back to thinking, okay, you're feeling this feeling wherever it is in the, in the body. You don't have a trigger. You don't know where it's, where it's coming from. So you're a bit displaced. We go back and unpack family history find out, oh, actually, well, my uncle had this really, you know, depression. He was low, but no, he wasn't treated. And I'm actually feeling the feelings of like what could have been what he was feeling. So you can, you can skip a generation. So when we look at inherited historical trauma, this is what we're talking about. You know, um, when we talk about technology, I mean, um, we might immediately think of the various uh, theories about, well, spending too much time on an iPad. There are things that we tell our kids you're going to go blind you're going to your brain will shrink you know all these things yeah. that we try to scare them off the screens but but in actual fact and i have to say i feel this personally that there is sometimes an overload of information an overload of images an overload of much. news mm. all of a sudden we hear about and we see we see the trauma being brought around the world on victims of various sorts, you know, whether it be natural disasters like famine and starvation and uh, floods and, uh, and hurricanes and the, the, the thing that just happened in Hawaii, you know, the firestorm. And you see the victims, you actually hear the screams of people, you see the faces of people traumatized in horror. Um, and this, I have absolutely no doubt, has an impact. Absolutely, because we may not have been party to it, but we're watching it or we're hearing it. So it's going to bring up emotions for us. We're human beings. We have, we're, you know, we are emotional beings. So it's going to stir something up, you know, whether it's here or whether it's here, it's going to um, allow for something to manifest. And we're not, in, and many people are not in control of that. And they think, oh my gosh, you know, I've seen this and it's like, now it's a trauma. So it's a secondary trauma. They've not been in it, but they've watched it. So, um, and even through the lens, it almost becomes third, kind of third party trauma almost because... I remember the first time, you know, uh, I mean, what you just said, it uh, triggered a memory in my mind that uh, um, in 1991, um, I was old enough, I was about, uh, what, probably 21, 22, and I recall being observant of the very first 24-hour news channel covering the war in Iraq uh, right. in yeah. 1991 after the invasion of Kuwait. And it was CNN. We were glued, and I mean glued, because it was the first time that, you know, after 11 p.m., there is any TV, TV to watch. Yeah. There used to be the national anthem, and then you that's go, it. you know, that's it. You go to bed. But all of a sudden, you had the CNN and 24-hour news and at 2 a.m. your time. So your curiosity. And, and the, that's what and happens. And I recall the emotion that I saw when one of the uh, missiles was launched from one of the uh, frigates. Um, and, you know, that really shook me. So I mean, what did you feel? Well, uh, I mean, I, thank you for, for, for psychoanalyzing me. It's, <laughs> it feels uh, a little bit now. But no, but, but it's very appropriate. But yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it felt, I, I felt a thud inside. I felt my entire body shake as the missile was, was and um, I couldn't help but think, okay, so if this is the launch, how is it going to be when it falls? And um, and that was, I think, the very first time that I was seeing something in real time, and because this had just happened in real time, 
and feeling that kind of of, of, of impact on on my, on my psyche on on my day the the next day the next few days i was i was i was literally i was quite down probably even depressed and the only thing that i can think was the reason was this so you know extrapolating this to what we have today what we see today and it shocks me sometimes how some parents allow their kids to just basically troll through they do and there's no fil- there's no filter to stop it no. and you have these um apps where you can monitor but children are very clever. They're very clever. They're, very They're clever. far cleverer than us who, you know, uh, install the apps <laughs> yes. in order to monitor. They know how to get around they it. They do. But it almost makes them, stops their brain from functioning. Because I know when I grew up, I was growing up, you know, it was books and comics. You know, Enid Blyton, yeah. for instance, yeah, yeah. you know, Beano, you know. Um, and they, it's almost, they, they don't have, the, uh, the schooling system is such, you have these iPads even in school. And then... Parents want to make it easier for themselves. Okay, they've just had the, the phone or the iPad. Just sitting there. I'm going to go off and do my cooking or I've got to do something else. And the brain stops functioning because that's all they're watching and it, it doesn't allow them to think. It's kind of you're fixed, almost like um, when you get rabbit eyes, you know, and you're just fixed. Um, and I find it really sad that the information that they're now gathering, that information Brain is like a computer, isn't it? So it'll, ca- it'll gather the information and it'll be it'll be in that memory. So when children, um, you know, are high functioning, they say, "Oh, well, they've got ADHD." They'll have a label for them, or oh, it's autism. But actually, if you take all this technology away and you and you go back to the basis of teaching, this is what I think we need to do. And that's just my personal opinion, but I think it's really important. Let's think forward a little bit. I mean, a, a generation that is is exposed to all of this that we know. Um, besides, obviously, I mean, we have porn, we have all the other, you know, I don't know what to call it. I mean, frivolity, idiocy, whatever it is uh, that that's available, and that is unfortunately, whether we like it or not, educating the masses. What real impact will that have on society as a whole? And what are we talking about? Individuals who are scarred either by what they've seen, what they've heard, what they've experienced, um, I mean, and, and which go unnoticed by parents who wish to think that their kids are okay. Yeah. I think it's, How a, does that manifest itself? Mm, I think there's a few things here. I think one is the schooling system. Um, and I feel that because everything is now sexualized, um, and I'm going to say it to you quite openly, we have all these books now. And, and we have to conform to what the education department are saying, well, this is what we need to be doing. And then you have all the outside people coming in, we're the teachers and we've got the books and we have this is what we need to show the children. So you have this side. Then you have the side where parents um, don't have the education, Not in a, I'm not saying in a negative, but they're not educated or aware um, around what is being taught at school. So we have as you know, a few years ago around the um, the relationship and sex education, and there was a whole up he- uproar about it. However, I really feel it's a responsibility for schools to also be able to inform parents, for parents to be in, in, you know inquisitive and curious enough to want to know what is it that's been, what is this all about, and not shying away from it because our generation, especially within you know South Asian communities shy away from asking the questions and these are really important talk about sex education with your child if your child is being exposed to at school that's they a huge to, ask it is that's a huge, a huge ask. but they don't have the tools you see so where will they get this education from they're too shy you know our forefathers never spoke about it if you imagine when um two young people are brought together as an arranged marriage they expect to know how to have intimacy how will they know how will they know yeah So we have to really start changing this movement around education. But surely now we're, I mean, the generation that we're talking about right now who are parents of, let's say, little children up to teenagers, they are more aware. I'm pretty sure. No, I mean, I'm talking about my generation. We were never talked, uh, spoken to about, you I, know, sex. I assume about, we're around the same age. Yeah. So, so we were never spoken to about We were never anything. spoken to. But I'm guessing now that my children, for instance, I mean, they're fully aware because of either what happens in school and because I have this sense that that's not right. 
you know, being kept in the dark, you know, the hush hush. So my question of, to you then, Ernest, if it's okay. Yeah, go to on. Us, yeah. Is, so who 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 in your family, whether it was if you're I don't know if you're married or anything, but who was the key person for your for your children to go to to ask questions about anything they had? That's a very good question. That, that's a that's a, a very, very good question. And um, I was asked this uh, once many, many years ago. And now this is the second time I'm asked that. I, I don't know. I mean, I left them to their own devices. And I always was assured in myself that I had brought them up with the kind of ethics and principles and guidelines and the such. So they they could maneuver. They had uh, quite an expansive space to maneuver. They were free to, to, to but that they would find their way. Um, but so, it's an so, interesting So question. they were on their own to navigate to themselves. To an extent, yes, absolutely. How would you have changed that if what you know now today, would you have been able to change anything for yourself? I, for, well, for myself, I would, uh, you see, the thing is that we come from uh, environments where asking questions is seen as, is seen as being impolite That's right, yes, and yes. discourteous. And uh, therefore, you can't even ask a question, regard, regardless of whether the other party is willing to answer or not. You can't even initiate the discussion. But do you know why? Uh -huh. Because they didn't have the answers to, to the questions. Because it, so this is where when we talk about environment, we need to change this this language. You know, we need to equip parents, even parents who are in their late forties. You know, who are new parents, they may have a bit more um, knowledge around things, but it doesn't make them a parent immediately. So they need to have places where they can go to ask these questions. Um, parent support. You know, we have so many calls for parent support because they don't know how to ask the questions or where to go to get you know, the just, answers. Just on this, you know, I mm. had a friend whom now you've, uh, I've, I've, I'm, I'm reminded of something he said uh, when we discussed this. He said, um, I don't have the words. I don't have the words. I mean, I'd like to have that discussion with my son who's now in his 20s and about to get married, but I don't have the words. And I would feel utterly you know, ashamed to even broach the subject. So this is the this is a, a really good example. So if your friend had the tools, the language, and the confidence to be then you know to have these conversations when his child was younger, the relationship would completely be different anyway. That closeness with him would be completely different, and the openness will be different. And I think it's so important and very key. And I say this in a lot of my talks um, that parents need support. They need that awareness. They need education. And they're too shy or too frightened even because it's it's drummed into them. We don't ask these questions. We don't talk to it. They go to school, the children, and that's where they get the education. But when things turn, they think, well, what's going on? Yeah. And Why it, didn't I know about this? And it's sprung on us whenever there's an issue. Yeah, I, I, I know in my grandchildren's school, you know, when I saw some of the books that they came, you know, they, they have, my daughter was showing me, I think, oh my God, this is like, you know, it's like you can't teach a five or six-year-old without, you know, this is too much. It's too much. It's too, it's too much overload. They don't need that information. Allow children to be just children right now. When they're eight and nine and things like that, their body changes, it's starting to change. And then, as again, equipping parents to understand. But if they don't know it from themselves from before, they're not going to ask anybody immediately, you know, unless it's come from schooling, they've got a letter come home, or they're curious enough to find out. And it's the curiosity which is the key thing. But I find that with many parents that I speak to, they're not curious enough because they're too shy, ashamed. And they just like, you know, I'm just going to leave it to the school. In your profession, uh, and you, you agreed with me that uh, it's been the last 20 years when we've been all of a sudden enlightened to the various aspects of mental health and how deep the impact of uh, issues with mental health can have on one's life. But in, in your practice, what is it that you have seen as a marker of, of, of this? I mean, what, what are the, 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 the issue that comes up time and time and time again? Oh gosh, it's quite varied actually. So we have, so under mental health, you know, we have depression, we have grief and loss. Grief and loss can be not just by death of somebody. It can be loss of um, 
So there's a lot of things around abuse. So you could have a lot of grief and loss around losing your virginity to being raped by an uncle or something. And these are real problems. And we see it more because it's always been brushed under the carpet. So a parent might know what's going on, but they don't have the power to stop it. Am I correct in assuming that most of those you deal with are from the Muslim South Asian community? We have a lot of South Asian. We have a lot of Muslim clients for sure. Um, but we also have non-Muslim clients. It doesn't stop the, um, whatever the scenario is, the problem is. People with depression everywhere. There's, yeah, there's no I mean, faith-related... Depression doesn't uh, favour or, or whatever a particular ethnicity. But, but do... there's a difference of how it's treated. Uh-huh, uh-huh. This, is, this is what, this what is, I want to address. Yeah. I mean... Do, I would assume, and this is, by the way, impressional, absolutely, I have no empirical evidence, but I would assume that uh, people of Muslim background or of South Asian or probably Middle Eastern uh, ethnicity, they would be far more reluctant to come forward. Absolutely. And they would be far more reluctant to admit that they are ill. Yeah. Am I correct? Absolutely. How do you you tell people? So the only way we can make a change is by having these conversations, going to communities, having conversations with our local mosques, imams, um, community centres where there's lots of teaching going or where there's ladies, you know, gathering. Women will filter information. It's like networking. Men, it's a hard, it's a hard one to get through right now. And we we do have clients who are male. We have counsellors that are, are trained and who are male. But it is around, again, it's around getting into the community, knowing who your leaders are with various different organisations and having conversations. So for me, I'm in my community. I can go in. Everybody knows kind of who I am, what I do. Um, so I'll, I get inundated. I get inundated with people just want to have a quick chat on the phone. This is issue. What do I do? So th- there's no quick fix, but you can then guide them to to where to get the help. Unfortunately, within the NHS, there's such a wait list, unfortunately. So it's knowing who to then, who do we then refer to? So I'm just going to narrow it down to the Muslim community for now, um, because I know the South Asian community is quite vast and very wide. But um, if I just concentrate on that, because I think that's really important, is that knowing who are key people, trusted community people within, you know, in your borough. Having that confidence to then say, well, okay, I can refer you to this person here. They will either say yes or no. They say, well, will that confidence be broken because, you know, you know, it's that Chinese whispers that it'll go around that I'm going for counselling or I've gone for help. And then I'll unpack, well, look, you know, if you've got a broken leg, you're going to go to the hospital. If you've got a toothache, you're going to go to the dentist. If you've got an emotional problem, you're going to see a counsellor or a psychotherapist. They are professionals. They are the people that can help you. They will have the language to to give you for yourself. They will have so you can understand what's going on for you, why these feelings are happening. And How do you counter the belief that well, what's with me is a bit of evil eye or a bit of uh, gin? Yeah, maybe, that's or a really like that's that. a really hard one. But how, really... do, how do you convince me that uh, yeah. this is not it? Well, I would say I'm not a scholar or an alma, but it's saying to the um, individuals, you can get the guidance from an imam or a scholar that if you ha- have been afflicted, but more often not, families find it easier to say that, oh, they've just been a- a- afflicted by a jinn or ain or, you know, hasad or something, rather than saying they've got a mental health issue. So it's a huge difference. And that gap hasn't stopped. I mean, it still happens right now. I just had the other day, someone said, oh, Sarah, you know, you look like you've got ain on you. And I think, well, how do you know? <laughs> how do you know? Oh, you're looking really tired. I said, well, <laughs> I haven't slept really well, have I? <laughs> but people assume and they just put this thing on and they, so they plant a seed. So this seed is planted in my head. I'm thinking, well, have I been? <laughs> Am I going to read a bit more gulas? Am I going to read a bit more, you know, my, to my safeguard myself? But can you see what happens when you plant these seeds and it's a, and then how that will manifest and how it will grow? By the way, I mean, when you look at the, let's say, three centuries ago, in the West, anyone who had flu was like, you know, the almost, ba- you know, boundary witches the, who needed to be, be put down. Uh, anyone with any kind of manifestation of, of pain of some sort was beaten up and because there was something in, inhibiting his body and... Uh, 
so so it's not far off i mean the same the same problem maybe a different kind of description but but we're talking about the same the same impediment but but these are issues that are these are real issues because deep, people are paying people to inflict pain on an individual who's got mental health issue I mean, this is abuse very clear abuse and i'll probably get a backlash for saying that but it's abuse we cannot beat somebody because we think they've got a gin i mean it's clearly so telling a young lad to sort of man up and face his problems and be like dad who was stricken with a belt you know every other day it's just wrong it's wrong they they need to have they need to have love and compassion and kindness but if your parent or your caregiver hasn't been taught how to give that how will they filter that down because we all need a bit of love kindness and compassion you know um that's that will allow us to then start feeling allow us to feel okay well actually i can go for help i i'm entitled to get help you know i mean i feel quite passionate about it and i feel it makes me really sad that when i see young people and they close up and say well i'm not worthy of it or it's no point because no one's going to hear me no one's going to believe me my family don't care they just like them just get on as you said just get on with it man up and they're sitting there in silence thinking well, what can i do and what can what do they turn to they think well actually i don't really want to be here anymore i think i'm just going to leave how do they leave they either od or slit their wrist so badly that um you know that's self harm and we have a lot of it within the it's 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 really sad and anas i can't tell you how um you know it really makes me cry sometimes when i've had clients and and i know i might be the last person they're seeing but you know we do our risk assessments and everything but you just don't know what's going to happen at any point you know you can have all the plans and people in place to look after that one person but they really not going to be here because they feel they have got the no support from the key people that they want it from who don't see them or don't hear them then what what do they do what is the um... the involvement of i mean when I, when we speak about the muslim community obviously there's there's a very wide uh, sector of the muslim community that doesn't frequent mosques and therefore um telling them about the role that an imam can play is really irrelevant to them because they they're not within that kind of of network but talking about the roles of imams of alimat of uh, uh of teachers of quran of uh, various other disciplines where do you find them as educators um in a in a in a sort of peripheral sector where do you see their so, role so there's a lot of movement in imams at the moment who are going for mental health training and they can recognize that doesn't make them um a therapist just as i wouldn't be able to an alimaro i wouldn't be able to do be a course, give no. scholarly advice or anything so they are now actually really coming into that part of the world of actually we need to know we need to know when we can um recognize somebody's not you know there's something wrong when people come to us we know it's not just affliction and they feel that it's gin related but we can distinguish actually this is a mental health issue and how do they then support that person and to refer them to the appropriate resources and a lot of the the um mosques and through the i know around in london they are attached to services for counseling or they have an organization that they're attached to that they can offer that service to i'm certainly within my remit where i am you know we get lots of referrals and it's something that they can just refer when they want to themselves as well so they don't have to just go through the imam but imams just going back to your question they are now becoming more educated and wanting that education um around mental health to distinguish the differences of around okay it's not scholarly advice it's mental health and i what do we do um and i think this is more of the the younger imams so the older who, who old are school aware of the importance of yeah. this Yeah. And know how to navigate yeah. these these yeah. issues. So there is change happening. It's not as quick as we would like it to be, but the fact that people are now really wanting to know, I think that's the first steps to everything. And I know every community will have a different stance on how they look after their community um or or if there is anybody in the community who can be that community leader to have all that information. um you know i live in wandsworth so i know my community um 
um, and they know me, but I'm I'm one of many partnerships because you, you can't do this on your own. It's partnership working is very key. So if it's multi-agency working, we need to know, well, what are those steps? Where do we go? If the housing issue is causing the mental health issue, if the they've lost their job and they've got to get cost benefits, of the cost of living, it all has a detrimental effect on mental health. So it doesn't have to have been something inher- inherited or depression has come up from um, an illness or anything or, or, or grief because of bereavement. All these new factors have come in. The pandemic, you know, that... Two years of lockdown. Two years of lockdown, you know, has caused a are, lot of in, mental In your estimation, are, are there sufficient numbers of practitioners who are Muslim, South Asian, who are going into this, uh, this there, line? No, it's a really good question. There is a lot more than they were 20 years ago. Um, so, you know... We, I, I'm a training agency as well, so we take trainee counsellors, have done since the last nine years. So I could say we've probably had maybe, I don't know, 300 come through the service. So that's just my service. There are more services out there who are teaching Islamic studies um, along with mainstream therapy um, modalities. So you have cognitive behavioural therapy, psychodynamic, person-centred, you know, the list goes on. Yeah. But we have this new Islamic psychotherapy um, and the framework, and that goes right back. Islamic, are you talking about um, what we know, Ruqya, and about? No, not just, no, no, no. The just, beating, the jinnah. No, not you. the beating, no. <laughs> Electrocuting, you know. <laughs> Definitely not. <laughs> it's, it's, I mean, the things that I've heard, I, I'm, I'm, I, I haven't experienced anything personally, but I can tell you that I've heard from people whom I trust some really horror stories. You and me both. They are horrific stories. That's why you have to be regulated. So we have these um, education established teaching Islamic therapy and and that teaches the Islamic um, framework of psychotherapy. So we go right back to Ibn Sina, right back to Al-Ghazali, right back to Al-Balki's work. You go right back to that historical time, you know, psychotherapy. It wasn't really called psychotherapy, but the counselling side was very, very paramount and very much there. Back then. Back then. Right back then. But we're now just reaching out to that part of the education. By the way, I mean, now that you mention it, I mean, time and time again, reading the Holy Quran, Allah advises us to look into ourselves, our nafs. Nafs. So we're, we're, heart, we're constantly reading about this, but it doesn't occur to me or to most, I would assume, um, that here, mental health and 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 looking after that side of things is what is amongst the meanings that's talking because about. Because people are not educated around it. When I came, so I'm a revert Muslim. It's been 38 years. So when I came into Islam, I knew nothing around mental health. And my teacher knew nothing around mental health. I learned Arabic. Learned, I don't speak Arabic. Only Quranic Arabic. I can read it. But there was nothing around mental health at all. This has happened for me in the last 20 years, having curiosity. Well, what does Islam actually say about counselling? So when we go back to our Prophet, peace be upon him, and he's the, he's the, the, the best of counsellors. And if we just, if we look at all the teachings and we are curious enough to find out, well, what does it say? You'll find there's a whole history around psychology, you know, and that's what's happening right now. So this new movement around Islamic faith-based therapy is all around the teachings of what was how many, how many hundreds and hundreds of years ago, you know, and it's never too late. So there's a few people that I know who have teaching establishments um, and they teach Islamic, Islamic counseling studies and it's quite awesome. We have a directory for Muslim counselors, which is run by a friend of mine. And we have so much more resources that we are privy to. And I know we're in America, they are f- so far more ahead of us. I mean, Dr. Rania Awad, um, yeah, mashallah, yeah, yeah. she's amazing. She's brilliant. Yeah. She's brilliant, mm. you know. Um, so we have lots of people worldwide. So it's not just in the UK there's this movement going on. It's happening everywhere. How, I mean, I'm assuming that your sector is uh, under the NHS. Is that correct? No. Tell me more. Uh, tell me My about. particular. Well, yeah, I mean, it d- does the NHS provide psychotherapy? It does. It, it does. But 
um, so I'm not connect. I mean, I get referrals from NHS, but we're not connected. We're quite separate. They do. Of course, you know, you have the IAP services, you have to go through your GP, you can do a self-referral if you've got um, a talking therapy organisation under NHS and you get something like six sessions, but it's not enough and it's and it's not Islamically led for some people who want an Islamic stance on it. Not that they want an ayah or be told to read more Quran or read Salah, it's, you know, I might look Muslim, but I may not be a Muslim counsellor, as in practising Islamic counselling. Yes, yes, yes. But I can still understand where they're coming from. You understand the context. The context. You so don't if need I, to start they look from like scratch. me, I look like them, they're more likely to gravitate. Well, actually, I'll see Sarah because she looks like she will understand where I'm coming from, you know, inshallah. <laughs> inshallah, inshallah. Um, because, I mean, one of the things that, as you were, as you were speaking, um, I thought to myself that with everything being cut, you know the services, the funding, and everything. I, I, I'm, I'm thinking. So, well, that for it, my organisation, we're a very small grassroots organisation. It's a charity, so we provide lots of free counselling. We try to get funding. We get some funding. We provide a contribution-based service uh, where people might just pay two pound. It's not because we need that money, that two pound. It's so that they are giving, and they are feeling grateful, and they. And they parting with something because it's really important. But there's many like me nationally, which is really good because NHS, unfortunately at the moment, haven't been able to facilitate that process because there's just not enough money. But would you be able, I mean, with that sort of independence from the NHS, would you be able to utilise or to connect with some strands of the NHS? Oh, absolutely. Referring no, we, people, for instance, and absolutely. getting referrals? Or... Absolutely. You know, it's, you've got to build your relationships. You've got to build your, your connections. And that's really key, especially within this work, because it's such an important part of work. It's not just a job. It's... It's you're looking after an individual and that is really important because it's a responsibility that you hold it's from start of the relationship to wherever you're going to refer them on to or whether it's in-house and they're seeing one of the therapists, you know, or everything that um, the holistic being is important. It's not like, say, take this medicine and you'll be okay. Everything for that person is going to be very raw and very real and very delicate and very sensitive. And it's very... Um, time managed as well so depending on how many sessions they have a few episodes ago we uh, uh, dealt with uh, domestic abuse um, particularly the um, the abuse violent abuse sexual abuse against um, uh, against women and um, we addressed that with uh, someone who was uh, practicing in that area and providing looking after a shelter for uh, uh, for victims of domestic abuse um how much is the issue of domestic abuse whether it be against spouses or whether it be against children or i don't know um with the with the uh, with the sector or the aspect of mental health in which respect do you i mean is it valid to well, no, no. What I, I is it valid to say that um, domestic abuse is just one manifestation of mental mental health, which we haven't diagnosed? Someone who um, freely beats up their wife or their son or their daughter, or even worse. I mean, you mentioned the issue of rape and and, and the like. So, for someone to behave in such a way, there has to be something that has gone on for them whether it's mental health issue, whether it's alcoholism, drug abuse, which has then escalated them to change their behavior. Um, so it's always going to have to come from somewhere. It doesn't mean it's an excuse. Uh, no, no, absolutely. I mean, yeah. there is so no removing the criminality yeah. of, of but this. But it will have to have come from somewhere. You know, if someone is so narcissistic, where has that come from? Where has that part of their education come from? It's not to blame parents. But something somewhere has happened for them to change the way they're thinking. So that framework of, you know, how do we change how we're thinking? You know, we do look at choices, but domestic abuse, it doesn't stand on, on its own just to say it's a mental health issue, but it has to have come from somewhere else. So whether it's because of drugs or alcohol or something else. And then unfortunately, the receiver 
um, whether it's a male or a female, that is going to be at that, the end. That, the, of... the damage inflicted upon them is something that that. Well, hopefully they will come to people like yourself and try to. I mean, we we do have um, part of the service. We do um, support women and men of who are victims of domestic abuse. You know, um, and we have, interestingly, we have a lot more men that have come forward in the recent years than ever before. Really, and that's South Asian men. Really, mm. that's uh, quite interesting. And is it essentially? Is it depression? Is it? Uh, um, well, well. I mean, when you say domestic abuse, I'm, I'm. That's a big leap, by the way, for for a man of South Asian yeah. um, origin. You'd be surprised, Anas, to because, actually come forward and yeah. say, "I've been abused." Because men have all. I mean, you're a man. It's always man up. You know, just get on with it. What are you talking about? And you can't admit to being overwhelmed or to being victimized because it's too embarrassing to to say, "Well, like, yeah, my my partner or my wife." You know, she takes all my money. She has control of my bank. That's abuse. How much do you involve uh, or do you find that it's necessary to involve I don't know, the police, for instance? So it really depends on the situation. So as an organization, we haven't had to, but we do receive referrals where there's court cases are going on. So we support the individual right up until court case and a little bit more. We always advise... Uh, not as a therapist, but as an organization, if you're in any danger, you have to think about the safety if you have children, first and foremost, and yourself. And you must call emergency services because it could just be too late. And do you find that people take that on board favorably? They hear it. Yeah. They they don't believe that they can do it. So it's then looking at, well, what support do you need? Because we can't force anybody. But if it's children involved, then it's a risk element. And and we then have to say, look, you know, it's a risk element. We have a duty of care to you as an individual, but to your, your children or your child. And we do need to then alert. And I've had to do that in the past. You know, we alert the emergency services and then social workers come and everything. And you have to do your report. But you have to, if that's saving a life, we hear it far too much around. I mean, we've just got that young girl. So in, in immediately, like, look, this just has happened this, what, this last week. You know, what's gone on? We don't know what's gone on. But for a 10-year-old girl. And know, with a Muslim name and with, it's, uh, you know. it's, yeah. So this is not just a standalone. There's so many stories in us. There's so many, and you've probably heard many, you know. I have friends and colleagues who've, who've grown up in violent homes, yeah. you know. Hasn't made them a bad person. But um, it's damaged them for sure, you know, it, you know, not being able to make relationships, yes. keep a relationship. Yeah, I remember many years ago, I uh, volunteered uh, uh, a few nights with uh, an East London charity that would uh, go around uh, East London Tower Hamlets and, um, and basically speak to young uh, men who are simply just standing on street corners and you can see that they're vulnerable to whoever may, you know, give an offer them, whatever. And some of them as young as 13, 14, you know, on their bikes sometimes just, and I, I, I still can't forget, uh, the young boy who looked like no older than 13 years old. And I sort of came to him and said, you know, who are you? What's your name? Which school do you go to? What subjects do you like? And then I said, listen, what? it's it's late. Why are you out? And I, I still remember his, his answer. He said, because I told him I have nowhere to sit. I have nowhere to sit. He's uh, a big family. He has something like five siblings and they have two bedrooms or three bedrooms. So he has nowhere so the vulnerability of the streets so has taken him. Mm. That's that's his safe yeah, place. Absolutely. He goes out to the streets late at night, 10, 11 p.m., and he's vulnerable to whoever approaches absolutely. him. Absolutely. And the kind of, and, and this is what I, I keep coming back to, and that is uh, the kind of accumulative damage that is done. You spoke earlier about inherited trauma. Um, but this kind of damage that one carries from the age of 13, that kind of of weight. I mean, most children shouldn't be Should, feeling that, that kind, you know, about whether they have a space to be in their own home 
or in which bed or which corner they're going to sleep. Most children shouldn't be worrying about that. No, but so they don't have a safe space at home. Their only safe space is outside, which is they're vulnerable to the elements. And as you say, they can be, there's so many people who will prey on young, younger people, you know, and that's a whole different lifestyle and, and, and maybe for a different show. Yeah. <laughs> but it's, um, it's a danger. It's a danger. Okay. So let's, let's try to um, suggest some practical steps for uh, the Muslim community specifically, but also, uh, you know, the ethnic communities that you deal with, that I deal with, for instance, the Middle Eastern, Turkish, uh, Balkan, um, South Asian, Southeast Asian communities that we deal with, the North African, of course, who are quite prevalent in, in London, yeah. especially, but also other cities. And where, you know, they are confronting these issues on a, on a, on a day level, whether it be um, topics taught yeah. uh, at school to, to their children, whether it be um, their children spending too much time on the streets being vulnerable to the elements, um, whether it be, you know, what they hear, what they watch, you know, the news that they hear. Most of those people are migrants, either, either second generation, third generation, and the kind of trauma that they carry as a result of that kind of transition not being accepted, feeling that they are being targeted by their employer, by their workplace, by, you know, whatever, by their neighbors maybe even. What, how would you address this immense array of issues? What would be, if you were to leave, you know, everyone today with, with a piece of advice, what would it be? I would definitely say that find someone who you trust in the community or whether it's most, you know, if they're migrants, they'll have a key person, whether it's the home office person or, or someone, but someone that they can trust and communicate. Communication is key to everything. If we can speak about things, we can make a change because then we've told somebody. So whether it's your, if they've gone to drop their children off to school, there might be somebody at the school that they trust or whether it's a GP, but it's finding that person because trust is such a huge um, element of everything around mental health or just seeking help you know find that person you can trust so they will know so I would say find a key person within the community that you can trust and seek and ask look I need this help I don't know what's going on I don't know who else to ask yeah how do you educate a community that is taught from an early age that asking for help is a sign of weakness how do you educate uh, that community to actually go out and seek help. So it's a bit of a ripple effect. So when you go to one place, so whether you're in a, a sister's session where they've got Quran classes and you've got a speaker coming and you're you're then planting the seed and you've made room for curiosity. And then you, this is the thing that we need to do more of. And you can't change a whole community in kind of a day or, or a few, few sessions or something because you've got, you might have one person that one person lives in a family of five or six or 10, do they have enough information and, and confidence to then filter that information without it being detrimental? So it's around the education of imams, education of other core leaders, um, people who might be um, interpreters, for instance. You know, they are key people within, because we have to use a lot of interpreters because of languages that we, we don't speak all the languages, you know, you know, you have so many, um, you know, Dari, Farsi, and Arabic, and so it's having people in in professional establishments who can be, whether they're trained or not, but who have relationships already fixed, and um, they can actually roll out some uh, with other organisations roll out awareness sessions. Some women will just walk up and leave because what they've been taught. It's like, no, I can't hear this. I'm not allowed to listen to this. So it's a really it's really hard to get into communities. But when you do and you have one person that is, and you can kind of have more people, take get more people on board, get more people in the schools, more people in the colleges, you know, get more people in the women and ladies sessions. You know, you've got um, walking groups, cycling groups, all these. What are we talking about in these in this time? What kind of conversations are we creating? So it's creating a topic and a conversation that will bring more curiosity. Well, actually, yeah, that's happening to me. I'm feeling like this. 
okay, I might go and talk to, um, I don't know, Anissa, and um, I might ask her about this. Maybe she might be able to help me. Or the brother might say, well, I'm at the mosque, and, you know, that brother seemed like he gave a really good talk. I might just go and find him and just quietly talk and ask him a question. So it's having that confidence you know, um, and I think that's where it would start from. And also, you know, <laughs> you, you, you talked, yeah, it's quite fascinating when you talked about parents not being able to communicate with their own children, not having the words, not having the tools to approach them. That's something that, that I found quite quite important, yeah, quite absolutely. interesting. I mean, it's really important and, and very key. I think key. quite elementary because, yeah. I mean, from, from an early age, you're sort of dealing with issues as they come, rather than then having to deal with an accumulation of issues that was built up over the years and uh, and maybe mistreated. Yeah. Hence uh, why awareness within the community is in, in, in so many different forms, because it's not just going to a mental health awareness day. You have to find different different topics within the in the community that people are interested in. You might go to a youth club, you know, and there's young people there who is what is the topic area? You know, oh, we're going to play football, we're going to play basketball, we're going to play netball. Um, and what happens in those conversations? You know, so I think it is going to be very topical in that moment. But finding what is happening in the community, having people to come into those places, creating conversations. And it doesn't have to be, you know, well, we're going to come in and talk about depression. It could be just that, well, how, you know, how's life with you? What do you do on an everyday? You know, I'm, I, you know, are, are you facing any, any difficulties? I'm here if you want to have a chat, you know. So when we have young people, you know, food brings everybody in. Yes. So when I do anything, I always have food because food brings around so many different topics of conversation. And we have people from all different ethnicities and cultures and backgrounds and languages that are spoken, you know, but we'll have an interpreter or people that can speak and translate. So it's being um, creative, so having some creative ways of coming into the community. So there's not going to be a fixed way. Yeah. The good thing that you have highlighted is the fact that people are more aware, that there are more people coming forward, that there are more people coming into the profession. Yes. Alhamdulillah. And, yeah. uh, and that generally speaking with society, with this awareness, this uh, you know collective kind of awareness of issues surrounding mental health and the importance of mental health um hopefully the communities whether they be muslim or whether they be south asian or they be um are latching on and maybe benefiting from this from this research absolutely and i think having more of these sessions where you have people come in and whatever the languages are that you have to coming in with, I think this is very key because people will tap into these services. They will watch these YouTube channels and things and podcasts and it will bring them, oh, actually, I've heard that on Anessa's show. Actually, I'm going to actually go make an inquiry. <laughs>